For those of you who can count and know how many chapters are in John, you know, we're almost done. We've only got chapter 21, sort of a special extra chapter. None of the other Gospels have this one, uh, but we'll be dealing with that later. Um, so today, we're going to go all the way through chapter 20. Um, when we met last week, we talked about uh, gazing on the cross, the crucifixion, the significance of that. And when we left Jesus, he had been buried in a tomb. The religious leaders had been concerned about a rumor of him rising from the dead on the third day. And so they had asked the religious leader, or they'd asked Pilate to give them some Roman guards. They had rolled a stone in front of the tomb. They had sealed it. They had Roman guards. I don't know what you know about Roman guards, but uh, if you're given a task and you fail at it, they kill you. So the penalty for the Roman guards not keeping the, the tomb secure was death. So they were pretty, you know, uh, incentivized. Um, and, uh, and so everything's good as far as the priests are concerned. This whole problem with Jesus is over with uh, until we get to Sunday, right? So that's where we're going to pick up. Now, I want you to remember, uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus' resurrection today in John chapter 20. So on Friday, uh, Jesus, the day before Passover, Jesus is crucified. He, they got him down off the cross just in time. Remember the day change for uh, Israel is, or for Ju the Jewish people is at sundown. So Saturday begins the Passover when they celebrate the lamb slain uh, so that they could live, right? And then, of course, Sunday morning would be the third day, the day after Passover, the day that Jesus uh, ruins all the plans that the Pharisees had. Okay, so we're looking at Jesus' resurrection, and again, uh, I'm pulling from all four Gospels and just kind of compiling the story, mostly because, as you're going to see in a minute, um, I'll talk about this. In John's gospel, he doesn't bother with doing it chronologically. The other three gospels kind of do, and so I think it's easier. So doing it kind of chronologically, here's what happens. So it's the day after Passover, it's the third day, and it's very early in the morning. It's actually before sunrise, so it's still dark. And what we uh, read has uh, happened is a, a, a bunch of women, uh, occasionally they're named, occasionally it's just a herd of women, um, but Mary Magdalene is named every time. She kind of stands out in this. Remember, she was the one that Jesus cast seven devils out of. And so she is particularly appreciative and fond of Jesus. And so Mary and many other women come with spices, and their plan is to anoint Jesus. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to do that with the big rock and Roman guards and all that stuff. And somewhere in there, there's an earthquake. Again, the stone is rolled away. And we don't have this in Scripture, but tradition is that the stone was rolled away uphill as if God was just kind of making a point. Uh, you know, it didn't just roll away, it rolled that away. And in uh, an angel, whether he rolled it away or God just did or whatever, the angel, there's angel or angels present, and the guards uh, experience the earthquake and the stone being rolled away, and the glorious angel, and they freak out, are exceedingly terrified, and it says they fall down like dead men. Now, we have no account 
of how they get out of there. We don't know if Mary Magdalene is stepping over the bodies of guards as she's going to the tomb, or if uh, they've gotten out of there before she gets there. We don't have that chronology, so you can picture that whatever way you want. Uh, I just like the, the idea of the stone rolled away and lots of guards laying around uh, terrified and can't stand up. So at any point, uh, we do know that eventually the guards were able to get back on their feet and run away, and they went to the priests and reported what had happened, and the priests paid them to say, uh, just say the disciples came and took the body. Uh, we know that there's no way the disciples overpowered Roman guards, rolled away the stone, took the body. And uh, plus, we know it's a death penalty for you. So we'll clear it with Pilate. We'll, you know, uh, skid the whatever you do. I forget. Yeah, grease the skids. That's it. Sorry, I'm, I'm not thinking politically. Um, we'll grease the skids a little and we'll take care of you. And you guys just tell the story and get out of here. So that's the deal. That's what the the guards do. And so we're left with the ladies standing there, an empty tomb, and an angel or angels, depending on uh, which account you're reading. And uh, the angel tells the ladies and Mary Magdalene two things, and this is important. First thing, well, they, they, she tells them the obvious thing. Jesus isn't here. He's risen. And, and that's impressive. And then... Uh, he says two things, go tell the disciples that Jesus is risen and tell them to go to Galilee, that Jesus is going to meet with them in Galilee. So there's this important meeting in Galilee. And I'm, I'm, this is a teaser. I'm not going to tell you what happens at this meeting until chapter 21. We don't read about this meeting in any of the other gospels. We only read about it in John. And the entirety of John chapter 21 happens in Galilee. So just be aware, you'll have to wait for that. But it is important, the angel says, tell the disciples that Jesus rose from the dead and that they're supposed to, he's going to meet with them in Galilee. Now, so they're like, good, tell the disciples, they're ready to run and go tell the disciples. And on the way, Jesus appears to them uh, as they're going. And so they realize it's Jesus and he's risen from the dead. And he tells them two things. Guess what two things? Go tell the disciples that have risen from the dead, and I'll meet with them in Galilee. Apparently, this is a very important meeting in Galilee. He wants to make sure that the disciples have it in their daytimer or on their cell phone or whatever. So that's twice, right? Now, uh, in fact, this is not the first time he's mentioned this, and so I'm going to expand the teaser a little bit. Uh, in Matthew 26, verse 32, uh, in the context of this is Jesus is saying, you're all going to betray me. Uh, you're all going to run away screaming like little girls, right? And, or something like that. And Peter goes, yeah, they might, but I won't. And he goes, no, not only are you going to do it, you're going to betray me three times, right? So it's in the context of this. It's the middle of this when he says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So I want you to remember it's in the context of their betrayal. He's saying, but after you've betrayed me, we're going to have this really important meeting in Galilee. Now, you feel free to go read John 21 and see if you can figure out why this meeting is so important, uh, and then we'll talk about it next time. Uh, but this is, uh, 
tied to Peter and the disciples' betrayal. And so in context, that's what 21 is going to be about. It's, it, I'm really excited about teaching this. We'll get to that next time because I think it's cool. Anyway, uh, the Galilee meeting is a big deal, and so you want to show up for that meeting. I'll, we'll talk about that. And the next thing that happens is, uh, again, uh, Jesus has appeared to the women, and then they go on uh, to tell the disciples what they've seen, and the disciples don't believe the women, but Peter and John run to check the tomb, and as they run to check the tomb, uh, then they see that Jesus is risen, and it says, then they believe. Now, what I want you to see is, uh, we'll start picking up here a little bit with John. I'm just going to pick some of the verses to look at. And again, I want you to see that John 20 is not chronologically laid out. The reason is, all the other Gospels kind of go through this in order. John wants to start with the foot race between John and Peter, and he wants us to make sure we know who won, all right? <laughs> And so what he says is, he goes, on the first day, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, yeah, 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 uh, but then she told us, and we ran, and Peter got a head start, but I passed him, and so I won, and then Peter went into the tomb, and then he tells the rest, so the chronology's off a little bit, you just got to understand that. In verse 10, he says, then the disciples went away again to their homes. Where were most of their homes? In Galilee, where this meeting was going to happen, Right? Uh, but this should actually be at the end of chapter 20, if we're going chronologically. Everything that happens in chapter 20 happens before they go to their homes. It actually happens in one day. So just be aware of that. Uh, and uh, in verse 18, uh, it's the whole Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. In verse 18, it says, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So he's taken the whole Mary Magdalene section and put it after his foot race section, where it, if you want to do it chronologically, just take that whole section and put it up between verse 1 and 2, okay? Does that help you? Anyway, uh, that's how that works, but they, he wanted to make sure that the important thing, the foot race, was covered. <laughs> it's only covered here in... John, for some reason. And John 1, did you notice that? Uh, John and Peter, you ever notice that they kind of have a thing going on? We'll see it again in chapter 21. Peter will have a comment about John. Anyway, uh, so that's just what happened, uh, the bare bones of, of the Ascension story. Again, because this is very familiar, uh, I'm not going to read it and go into a lot of this. I'm going to go into more the application of this, what this has to to do for us. So, in, but I do want to look at verse 17 because it is interesting. He says something here. We don't get this in any of the other Gospels. Uh, Mary, when he appears to the women, Mary, this is Mary Magdalene, is very excited and she falls down at his feet and grabs hold of him. And he says, do not cling to me, verse 17, for I have not yet ascended to my father but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And then she came and told the disciples what had happened. Now, a lot, this verse gets discussed a lot. Uh, there are theories. Let's just say right up front, Jesus doesn't tell us what he meant by this in any other place, so there are theories. Uh, so feel free to have your own. Um, but uh, 
one of the theories is that, you know, uh, Jesus didn't want anybody to touch him before he went to be with the Father, but it's probably not true. He specifically has, makes Thomas touch him a little bit later here. Uh, so it's probably not that. And we know um, when he's talking about ascending that he's not going to ascend for 40 more days, right? We see that in Acts chapter 1, that he appeared to people for 40 days before he ascended visibly back to the Father. So my leading theory in all of this is that it's not that deep, that he's just saying, hey, uh, I'm not back for good. Don't get used to this. Don't cling to me. Uh, I'm still ascending. And by the way, uh, I'm really focused on the ascending. I'm really excited about the ascending. And uh, so he immediately, even though it's not going to happen for 40 days after his resurrection, points to his ascension. Why is the ascension such a big deal? Well, I think because in John 16, verse 7, he told us this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Remember, he was telling the disciples this. They're sad because he keeps saying, I'm going away, and the disciples are bummed out. And he says, no, 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 it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, who's the helper? Very good. The Holy Spirit, the helper, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So what is necessary before they're going to receive the Holy Spirit? For him to go, for him to ascend into heaven. He has to go to the Father. He's, I don't know why, he's laid it out though very clearly that it's necessary that I ascend. If I don't go to the Father, the Holy Spirit won't come. But if I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come to you, right? And so I think Jesus is just saying he's very excited about the ascension, uh, ascension. And he's just saying, Mary, don't cling to me. I'm still going, and I'm excited about it because that's when everybody gets the Holy Spirit. Except we're going to see something later in the chapter that is Holy Spiritish. So, well, we'll get to that. Anyway, um, so keep that in mind, that what he's already told us in John chapter 16, verse 7, that uh, the helper only comes after he ascends. So what I want you to see also is this, though. He says, he's very specific. He says, and most of the time he referred to the father as his father. Uh, all through John, we keep seeing him talk about his father. But he's very specific here. He says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God, Right? And so he's really emphasizing the familial aspect, the familial access that the disciples now have. Why do they have that? Because he went to the cross. Remember? Remember uh, when he died on the cross, what got torn in two? The veil that represented the Holy Holies, access to the Father. And so the moment Jesus died on the cross for our sins... The veil is torn, and now there is familial access. We are accepted in the beloved. We can enter into the familial relationship in the Godhead because of the cross. And so he's pointing that out here as he says, I'm ascending, by the way, to my dad and your dad, right? Uh, my God and your God. We have the same relationship with him now because of the cross. You're part of the family which is awesome. We should just meditate on that. And so what I want you to see is, there, we keep going back to this. It's probably the most significant thing we saw 
uh, when we were going through uh, Jesus' discourse between the Last Supper and the cross, John 14, 15, 16, and 17. In John 14, verse 2, remember he says, I go to prepare a place for you in the Father. He says, my Father's house are many places, many dwelling places. I go to prepare one for you. What, how? By the cross. The cross made a way for you to have a dwelling place in God, right? You know, we talked about that, so you understand that. And um, we're going to talk more about uh, John 14, 23, where he says, if anyone has my commandments and keeps them, uh, he loves me and he'll be loved by my Father and will come and make a dwelling place in them. What was he talking about? The giving of the Holy Spirit, right? Which we know is tied to the ascension. And so he's saying, through the cross, we made a, I made a dwelling place for you in the Father. And through the resurrection and subsequent ascension into heaven, when I go to heaven, the Father and I are going to come in the form of the Holy Spirit and make a dwelling place in you for us. Remember, we talked about that in John 14. And so this is all going on. So he's emphasizing their familial access right now, and he's referencing uh, the ascension, which will give him, in the same way we have been given access to God, when God ascends and the Holy Spirit is poured out, it will give God this same intimate access to us in a way that's not occurred before, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Pretty awesome? Okay. So, this is what's going on, and before we, we look at more of John, uh, let's look at the significance of the resurrection. Now, to do this, the best place to see this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we'll cover the entire chapter, 50-some uh, verses, 58 verses, very, very quickly and briefly. How's that? Uh, by only reading a couple of them. All right, so what I want you to see is there are two pillars to the gospel basically, and one of them is the resurrection. Paul makes this super clear in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. You all understand, I don't need to explain that, that the, the, the pillars of the gospel are Christ's death for our sins and His resurrection to new life. Seating, ascending and seating himself at the right hand of the Father. Amen? And so he goes on then in verses 12 through 19 that I'm not going to read, but I encourage you at some point to go back and read 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to just get this better in your head. Um, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19 to say that this is actually, Jesus is actually proof that the dead do rise. Now remember, this is the major argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their major difference is that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees don't. And they had lots of arguments about that and they would ask questions of Jesus and try and trip him up about the woman with seven husbands and all that stuff because they want to know about this. And so Jesus, once and for all, says, the dead rise because I did. And Paul is saying that this proof that the dead rise is also proof that our faith isn't futile. He says that if, if, basically he says, if Christ's death, if he didn't rise, his death is only good for while we're alive. It only, you know, our sins are only forgiven while we're alive. If we die and we just stay dead, what's the point? 
And he calls us pitiful, right? He says we're most pitiful among men. But he says, but Christ did rise, and it's proof that we also can rise. You remember uh, the other thing that happened when Jesus died. First thing that happened, veil was torn in two, access to the Father. What's the second thing that happened? Graves, earthquake and graves were split open. Again, that speaks of access. Dead people now have access to life. You get the message? Isn't that cool? So uh, this is going on in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Paul's expounding on this, and I want you to see one other thing. Uh, I'm going to read verse 20 through 23. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it does mean the first of many who have fallen asleep, but it means something else. Um, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And then he expounds on this. He says, for as in Adam all die, remember because uh, Adam and Eve and the fruit in the garden, we all inherited death, sin, nature, all that good stuff. Jesus not only dealt with that, but dealt with the life part of it. So for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterwards, those who are Christ's at his coming. So it even tells us when we'll be resurrected, at his coming. Of course, we see that in other passages, that uh, at the last trumpet, uh, the dead will rise. That will be, it's actually in the same uh, passage, uh, that will, or chapter, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, and uh, we'll get our glorified bodies. It's very cool. I think we get horses, and we follow Jesus, and it's very exciting. You'll want to be there. Trust me. The alternative is really bad, okay? So, uh, the significance of this is uh, that because he rose, we can have new life. Not just new life in us now, but eternal new life in resurrected bodies. And going on, I'm, again, I'm not going to read it, but I really encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 38. Going on, he talks about how glorious these resurrected bodies are. These are awesome. They're apparently just like Jesus' resurrected body. Jesus, he could like walk through walls and just appear places and eat food if he wanted to. Uh, you know, it sounds pretty nifty. So, um, there's a glory to this. And uh, I want you to see that, but well, actually I skipped the thing I want to remember to show you. He's specifically, when Paul says he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's referring to something very specific in the feasts. Now remember, Jesus died the day before Passover. He rose the day after Passover. The day, the feast of, the, the spring feast and the fall feast are kind of clumped together. There's two or three of them in there. In the spring feast, the day after Passover is the feast of first fruits, where they would offer up the first of a harvest, and it began the count to the 50-day count to the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days later, which is a harvest feast, where they would harvest and offer grain to the Lord, right? So it's not just that he's the first of many resurrected from the dead. He is the fulfillment of the Feast of Firstfruits, which they've been celebrating for hundreds of years, pointing to the resurrection of Christ. He is the firstfruit. So once again, it's a picture. 
in the Old Testament that he's given them to see over and over and over again that Jesus rose on the Feast of Firstfruits to be the first resurrected from the dead. I just think that's cool, right? So, going on, uh, we're talking about this superior glory of the resurrected body, that not only uh, are we going to be resurrected, but apparently these bodies are very glorious, and there's descriptions, they're changed, uh, I'm, I'm thinking uh, I'm going to have a lot more mobility and not wake up as sore, stuff like that. I don't even know if I'll have to sleep, it's just I'm really excited about this new body, right? And I get it forever, apparently. Isn't that cool? All right. The older people are more excited than the younger people. I understand that. <laughs> the older you get, the more excited you'll be about a new body. So, but I want you to see, again, the significance of this glory, that it, there's a glory to this body that we don't presently have, and it's tied somewhat to our time here on earth. In Romans 6, 5, we see this, for if we have been united if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, now that's a condition, that we've become a disciple, we've said, yes, Jesus, I will take up your cross and follow you. I will trade this life for eternal life. That uh, we, we are willing to partake in the suffering that we may also share in his glory. All those verses. So, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So in the same way Jesus rose in glory, we're going to be raised in glory, which is pretty awesome, right? It's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in me. That's going to be so much more awesomer-ish than this, right? So what, and Paul, uh, had some fairly, fairly significant sufferings to talk about. And he said, they don't, even worry, they, don't even, they don't even get on the scale. They don't even worry to be compared with the glory that awaits me for just deciding that I'm going to follow Jesus and, uh, and uh, be his disciple. So that's pretty awesome. But again, there's more significance to this. What I want you to see is this, that it's not just important that we know this as a doctrine, that we're going to get a new body, but that we, in the same way it was important that we gaze at the cross and it does something to us. It's important that we give this some attention and we gaze at this. It does something to us. I want to show you what it does to us. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, John says, Beloved, now we are children of God. Right now, we're all children of God, right? If you're not, we can take care of that. But, I lost my place. Oh, I'm sorry. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. There's still some mystery to this, isn't there? But, we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. We don't really know exactly what we're going to be, but we do know that when Jesus comes in glory, we're going to be like Him. We're going to be made like Him. We're going to be glorious in some way. Now, here's the thing. It says, for we shall see him as he is. In verse 3, there's the application. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Here's what that's saying. Somehow, getting a vision 
that when Jesus comes, I'm going to be like him. I'm going to be glorious like him. I'm going to, uh, I don't know what all that means, but it might mean I, I can think more like him. I can act more like him. And, and as I ponder that, as I look on that, verse 3 says that that somehow, knowing that, motivates me to purify myself now, to begin to move towards that now, right? And so that's why I say it's not just a doctrinal point. It's something we need to think about. We need to give some time and attention to uh, thinking about what, what is it going to be like to be glorified with Jesus? Because somehow that makes us come back to this life and go, make statements like Paul made, well, I don't really care if I suffer. I won't compare with what I'm picturing. Well, I, I, don't, I don't really need these things. I, I, I want to I move towards the, the purity now. I want to move towards the glory now. So I don't fully understand how this works, but I'm pursuing it uh, so that I uh, am made more like him. I'd, I'd like the change not to have to be as dramatic then as it needs to be. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know it's going to be dramatic no matter what, but I'd like the purity part to not be that dramatic. I'd like to think I've been working on it a bit before we got there. You know what I mean? All right. So it's, it's a motivation. And so uh, we see these things as more than just correct doctrine, but things that are worth meditating on because they change us inwardly. Amen? All right. Let's move on from the resurrection and cover the rest of John 20. The next thing that happens is the apostles are commissioned. We're looking at verses 19 through 23. Now, if you go to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, other than a couple sentences, they basically just go right to the Great Commission and that's it. After the resurrection, they go, Great Commission, go into all the earth, make disciples, yada, yada, bam. Okay? And so John's a little different and Luke's a little different. I want to look at Luke a little bit because I want you to see a couple of things before we look at John. So we'll do that quickly. Okay, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read you a couple of verses. But in Luke, after the resurrection, there's a little bit more that happens. We have the story, whereas uh, one of the other Gospels deals with it in like one sentence. In Luke, we have the full story of the road to Emmaus. You know the story of the road to Emmaus? Everybody? Okay. So the gist of this is there's two apostles we don't know who they are. Not, they're not of the 11 uh, or two followers of Jesus. One of them is Cleopas. We don't know who the other guy is, Cleopas and the unnamed guy. Um, so anyway, they're walking along, and this guy starts walking with them, and he goes, hey, what you, what you talking about? And they go, where you been, man? Everybody's talking about Jesus and the cross and all that stuff. And, uh, and he goes, yeah, okay, well. Uh, and he begins to expound from the Scriptures all about Jesus and how the scriptures have shown how what happened had to take place. And their minds are blown and they're going, dude, you need to stay and eat with us. And he would go on, but uh, they talk him into it. And so in the breaking of bread, like, you know, we just did, in communion, as Jesus breaks the bread, all of a sudden they go, oh, this is Jesus. He reveals himself to them. There's a, probably a message there about Jesus revealing himself in communion. Right? So, um, he reveals himself to them, and they go, man, didn't our hearts burden within us? We knew this guy was special. That's Jesus. And then he disappears, and they're like, forget Emmaus, and they get right back on the road, and they head back. We got to go tell the 11 disciples 
that we just had this encounter with Jesus, and they get back just in time for Jesus to show up with the 11, okay? So you have all that in the background, just so you have the story. But here's what I want you to see. On the road to Emmaus, something interesting happens. Their eyes were open. They didn't see, and then they did see, right? And this is going to be an application here in a minute. In Luke 24, verse 45, it says this, and it says, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Somehow Jesus supernaturally gave them the ability to understand all the Scriptures in the Old Testament about him that they didn't understand at this point. Amen. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Now, guys, this is more significant than we realize. Going back to John 20, let's look at verse 9. When Peter and John have the foot race, and they, they see that Jesus has been raised, and they believe, it says in verse 9, For as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Now, let me ask you a question. Did they know... That Jesus had said he would rise on the third day. They did. Even the Pharisees knew that. That's why they got a guard to stand over the, and a stone over there. They were concerned about that happening. Everybody knew there was a rumor. He's going to rise on the third day. What didn't they understand? The scriptures. You see it? So he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. They were told but they didn't see it in Scripture. Guys, maybe you've got good doctrine. Maybe you've been given a prophetic word that's significant. But I'm telling you, there's nothing like seeing it in Scripture. Amen. There's nothing like having the Scriptures open to you. The apostles had been told what would happen. Jesus had given them a really cool prophetic word about what was fixing to happen. But it was way deeper when they saw it in Scripture. It was way deeper when they had revelation in the living word. This is what I want us to get. He opened their understanding so that they would see it in Scripture. He gave them prophetic revelation. Let me say this. Just, it's a simple statement, but I, I just I want to underline it and bold it and everything as much as I can. Guys, we need to be praying Ephesians 1. 17 through 19. Amen. We need to be praying Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1. Do we have that up here? Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That we would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory. And, and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then it goes on to talk about that same power of the resurrection, right? So I'm saying it's not enough to just, uh, and it's good. I mean, do your daily Bible reading, do your devotionals, do that stuff. It's not enough. We need to be going, God, open my eyes to see marvelous things in your word. Open the scriptures to me, God. Open the scriptures to me. Guys, I'm telling you, there's so much good stuff in there. And it comes by revelation. It comes supernaturally. By God giving us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And he'll give it if we ask. We need to be praying this prayer. 
And there are so many, there are way more end time prophetic verses than there are verses about Jesus' first coming. And I understand a lot of them, and there's quite a few I don't. And God's going to give revelation on those before he comes. And so, uh, you know, we need to be asking. God's going to stir it up. We're going to get deeper and deeper revelation that's going to enable us to walk through those times with grace, with understanding. So we need to, and, and even the scriptures that we're familiar with, I, I'm amazed at how often scriptures I've read again and again and again, and I see something I've never seen before. And so we just need to be praying that. I can't stress this enough. We need to be praying, God, open your word to us. Open the eyes of our understanding. There's depths of treasure in his word if we will dig for it. Amen? Okay. The other verse I wanted us to see in Luke 24 was verse 49, where he says to the disciples, when he's gathered together, he's appeared together now with the disciples, and he says, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. What was the promise of the Father? Holy Spirit. What was the thing they were supposed to do? Wait in Jerusalem until they're endued with power from on high. All right, now let's go ahead and finish up John. Verses 19 through 23. Then the same day at evening, so again, this is the day after Passover, the day that Jesus rose. It's that night. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let's unpack that a little bit. Now, the first thing that I love is he leads with peace. He always leads with peace. Have you noticed that? They're hiding because they're afraid. He says, let's... Let's just start out with the peace thing. Right off the bat, we need peace. Amen? I don't know about you. I find that when I'm trying to hear God, I hear God better if I can get peace first. So I go for the peace, and then I go for hearing God. Just a trick I've learned. Anyway, uh, it reminds me of the two places we saw this as we were looking through John, John 14, 27. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace. Different. This is peace inside. And, uh, of course, uh, 1633, I have written these things so that you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be a good sheriff, overcome the world. You can still have peace, even though you're being in tribulation, right? And so this is an example of that. He shows up and he says, peace. And then the second thing he says is amazing. This just should be mind-blowing. The Father sent Jesus to the earth to testify the truth, to reveal specifically who God was, to reveal the Father in every aspect, to reveal the nature of God, to display truth, right? And to preach the gospel, the truth, the good news of how men can be saved through faith in Jesus. And now, Jesus says, in the exact same way that the Father sent me to earth, I'm sending you. You get it? And so, in the exact same way, in the exact same family, with the exact same Holy Spirit, 
with the exact same equipping you've been sent as Jesus was sent, as the apostles were sent. I think we can take that from the apostles. Amen? And so they're sent. They're commissioned to bring the same message and the same truth in the same power with the same authority that Jesus brought. And I, I just want to do a little review here to kind of tie a bow on this and tie it all together. Remember, we started all this in John 13 at the Last Supper. My summary of the Last Supper was basically this. Jesus is telling them, I need you guys to learn two things. I need you to learn to love like I love, and I need you to learn to serve. Remember, that was the whole foot washing part. He said, because I'm getting ready to give you authority, God-like authority, and send you out as sent ones. And so I need you to learn to love and to learn to serve so that you can be sent like me, right? That's what was our takeaway in John 13. John 14 through 17 was basically preparation to take up his ministry. It was just Jesus giving them their pregame pep talk of all the things they needed to do to take up his ministry. Amen? So, all that stuff we learned as you ponder that, that's the stuff that we need to act as sent ones in his name. Now, as soon as he says, I'm sending you, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on him. Now, that's not insignificant. Uh, the word for spirit is pneuma, where we get the word pneumatic, means breath or wind. So the Holy Spirit is the holy breath or the holy wind, the one that God has. So God breathes on them, whew, receive the Holy Spirit. How many of you think they receive the Holy Spirit? Here's where it gets complicated. Are you ready? Now, first off, I find it interesting that's the same thing that God did in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. He took some dirt, he made it into a guy, he called him Adam, and how did he give him life? Breathed on him. Right? He breathed on Adam and he got physical life. So I'm believing that as he breathed on the apostles, they got some kind of life. I'm thinking probably the 2 Corinthians 5.17 kind of life. Behold, if anyone was in Christ, he's become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Somehow, he breathed into them the spiritual life of God and their spirit man came alive and they became a new creation in Christ. And I think that God does that for all of us when we believe. Amen? Here's where it gets tricky. Has Jesus ascended yet? What's the condition to receiving the Holy Spirit? He has to ascend. Has that happened yet? No. When does that happen? Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, right? So what I want you to see is this is clearly not the fulfillment of Luke 24, where Jesus says, I send the promise, tarry. That there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit beyond this. Now, uh, I don't have time to teach on this. Uh, you could do a whole Sunday on this. Uh, we do have a booklet in the foyer on baptisms. You could grab one of those, and all the pertinent scriptures are there, and you could educate yourself and ask me questions, and we might teach on it sometime in the future. All I want you to see is, in the scripture, Jesus breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, and then later, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I want to encourage you uh, not to argue about it, but to get everything God has. Uh, in fact, um, one, 
I'd believe in Jesus and receive his Holy Spirit and new life. Two, I'd ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the attending power. And three, since in Ephesians it says, keep on being continually filled with the Holy Spirit, I'd ask him to do it again and again and again. Just my thoughts. You do what you want. But I will say this. Uh, We do know that the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. What I want you to see is in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, there, (coughs) pardon me, there's kind of a specific order given to this whole thing. And it's uh, reiterating what we read in Luke. The order is this. He says, uh, wait for the promise of the Father, right? He told him to tarry in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. Step two, you'll receive power. Step three, you will be my witnesses, right? One, wait. Two, receive power. Three, go be witnesses. I contend that it is essential to be filled with His Holy Spirit, to be baptized in His Holy Spirit, to fulfill our commissioning. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't speak in tongues, you can't do ministry, all right? Obviously, you can't. I'm saying if we want to fully fulfill the commission that God has given us, we need to be fully filled with this Holy Spirit. We need to quit parsing over this and that, what makes us comfortable and uncomfortable, and just go, God, I want everything you have for me. And part of that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And of course, we, you know, believe in that here, and we'll pray for you, and uh, all that good stuff. But there's something else to this. If, if it's wait, receive power, be witnesses, this is just me. You don't have to agree with me, but I feel like maybe the church in general has tried to jump to two and three and skipped one a little bit. You feel like that? Let's, let's ask God for power and go be witnesses, and maybe we haven't waited enough. Maybe we have an upper room problem. The church waited 10 days in the upper room. Now, how long you got to wait? I don't know. I, I, th- I think we got to wait until we receive power. That's just a thought. What if we just waited until we receive power? Now, here's my point, and, and this is my thing. I beat this drum all the time, so I'm just going to beat it again. With, with very few exceptions, most churches in America and probably in the world, the least attended meetings are the, everyone knew the answer. Why? Because it's obvious. If the key to power is waiting, uh, why aren't we waiting? I'm telling you guys, uh, he laid out the order for us. Wait on me until you receive power and then go be witnesses. And the times we've done that, uh, the times we've pressed into God going, God, it is, it is unacceptable for us to not have your power. We're going to, we're going to bother you until we do. Uh, he's answered. And I don't think it's a just you do it at your house and me do it at my house. I think it's a corporate thing because I think he likes his kids to do it together. And so I just want to say this again to motivate us. that Guys, we need to wait on the Lord for power so that we can be witnesses in the, in the way the apostles were witnesses in the New Testament. Amen? Okay, so um, anyway, let's move on. The last verse, this also can be a problematic verse. Um, 
Whoever, if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven them. If you retain any of their sins, they are retained. Uh, let me explain this to you. It's actually simpler than it looks. Um, and it has to do with uh, the Greek tense, which I don't speak Greek. I'm just relying on experts here. Uh, but the tense, it would be better rendered if you forgive the sins of any, they are as having already been forgiven in heaven. Past tense, past perfect. So um, what he's saying there is not that the, author the apostles have authority to forgive sins. Only God has authority to forgive sins. He's saying the apostles have authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sin based on the response to the gospel. All right? So, and again, it's tied to this as already have been. And by the way, the other two verses that cause this same problem are in Matthew 16, 19, where uh, Peter says, um, where he says to Peter, um, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's the same Greek text. And whatever you bind on earth will as having already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will as having already been loosed in heaven. Same in Matthew 18, 18, where he says the same thing, except for all the disciples, not just Peter. All right? So it's, all those verses are the same, and two of the three are in the context of the gospel. One of them is in the context of restoring a sinning brother. And uh, so they're all talking about response to the gospel, response to God. So here's, here's how this works. Let me make this easy. I preach the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He is the only way to heaven. Uh, he rose again from the dead so that you could have eternal life. Are you interested? One of you stands up and goes, that sounds good. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I'm interested. I say, I have been given authority to proclaim to you, your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And another of you stands up and goes, nah, I'm not buying it. I think that Jesus is just, you know, there's lots of ways to God. He's just like Muhammad or Buddha or anybody else. I think he's just a good teacher. And I go, I've been given authority in heaven to tell you that your sins are retained and you're in trouble. All I've been given authority to do is proclaim what uh, the results of the gospel. Your sins are forgiven and your sins are retained based on your response to that. Pretty simple, right? Okay, so I want to make sure that that wasn't confusing. So he's saying, uh, he's commissioning them, receive the Holy Spirit, go preach the gospel and let people know whether they're going to heaven or not based on what they do with the gospel. Cool? All right. Now, one last thing. We're going to finish up here. Uh, we got a little section left. Uh, Doubting Thomas. You guys know this story? He doesn't call Doubting Thomas here. We call him Doubting Thomas because, you know, he wasn't there when Jesus showed up the first time and showed them his hands and his side. And so he comes back. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was the guy that had to go get lunch. And uh, the disciples tell him what happened. And John uh, and Thomas says, as you know, I ain't gonna, I'm not buying it. I, I get the feeling Tom was just one of those gullible guys that probably been burned too many times. And he goes, I'm not falling for it again. He's probably the guy they all played tricks on, you know. <laughs> all the disciples were going, Thomas, eat this, you know. I'm, I, who knows. So, so Thomas is going, I ain't buying it. Unless I, unless I see his hands and touch his side, I'm not buying it. And so Jesus shows up again and goes, hey, Thomas, here you go. Touch here, touch here. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. We all know the story. And then Jesus says something kind of profound at the end of it in verse 29. He says, 
Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What's he talking about there? We didn't get to touch his hands or his side, did we? We had to take it by faith in the scriptures and by faith in uh, the gospel presented to us through the word, through convincing proofs, through history. So uh, he's talking about 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith not by sight. That's easy to say. It's not always easy to do. Thomas wanted to see before he believed. And sometimes we're like Thomas. You show me. I'm not buying it. And so I just want to encourage us, there is a blessing in exercising faith, in walking in faith. Jesus says there's a blessing in believing when we don't see. And I want to even get more specific than that. Because in John uh, 20, verses 30 and 31, the last two verses, he says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So all this scripture is here so that we can believe, right? Uh, That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what I want you to see is if we can produce in ourselves believing the scriptures, not just the ones that get us saved, but all of them, if we can begin to believe these scriptures, they produce life in us. They produce his life in us. They produce his resurrection life in us. How many of you want that? So I got to thinking about that, and the obvious verse about faith is, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. The other obvious one is Hebrews 11, 1. And this verse has at times uh, bothered me because I, I didn't know how to fully understand it and apply it. It says, um, uh, the faith is the substance of things not seen, or things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So I, I go, what's the... Substance is something I can touch. Evidence is something I can point to. What's that mean? What is, how is faith substance and evidence? And I was thinking about that in light of this verse, that as we believe the Scriptures, they produce faith in us. They produce His life in us. And I started thinking, oh, the Scriptures themselves are the substance and the evidence of the things yet unseen. And here's what that looks like. Someone comes to me and says, oh, man, you're really going through it. And I go, yeah, I am. It's, I'm just getting beat up. I am going through, you know. But I say, but I'm going to, uh, I'm confident I'm going to come out of this. I'm going to prevail. Well, what's your evidence? I said, well, my evidence is 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Yes. I, he, I always triumph in him. I'm just going to triumph again. I don't know what it's going to look like, but that's my evidence. That's my substance. And, I'm, and I liked it because it's starting to give me a way to, to wrap my head around this passage. Oh, the scriptures are evidence and substance. If I, can, if I can take that verse or another verse, the verses we take on healing and other things, if I can so get it in me that it becomes substantive, it becomes evidence of the thing I'm hoping for. What's your evidence that this is going to happen? Well, it's right here. It's in this book. And so, again, we're back to the importance of the Scripture as a point of faith. This, you know, 
Jesus, give us understanding of your word. Open our understanding of scriptures. Lord, make these things substance to us. Amen. Make these things evidence to us of not just your past, but your future activity in our lives. And what I'm hoping this morning out of all of this uh, is not just that we'd be excited that Jesus rose from the dead because that we get new lives and, and new bodies, uh, but that we would begin to see, oh, in that way we, uh, having that vision for the glory of God, uh, we purify ourselves. We can do that through Scripture. We can begin to use the Scriptures, go deeper into the Scriptures in a way that is transformative uh, in our faith and in our lives. And it requires us to, uh, to just chew on the Scriptures a little more, go a little deeper in them, go a little bit harder after them. Uh, not just read them for ourselves, but read them with God. God, what's this mean? God, give me understanding. God, make this alive in me. God, make this something that is substance that I can point to and say, that's why, that's why, that's why. Amen? How many of you want to do that? All right. How many of you have Bibles? Good. You're ready. We can all do this. What would the church be like if we all did that? And then started going, we're going to wait on God for power and be witnesses, and it would probably be a danger to Palm Bay in Melbourne. All right, let's have the band up. We got, a, again, a few minutes left. Just want to let us go back into worship a little bit, and uh, just want to pray, see what God wants to do. Lord, I am continually hitting new levels of marveling at how good you are, how amazing your word is, uh, of the treasures that are hidden there that I've walked over again and again and again and uh, haven't dug. Lord, I pray today that you would make us a people who are... Uh, Lord, both discovering and revealing the treasure that is in your word. Lord, that it uh, it's, gets so far beyond doctrine to becoming uh, transformative in our lives. It becomes substance to us. It becomes real. Lord, we ask for that. We believe you want to do that. We don't know how except for to pursue you with the word in our hand and in our mouth. Say, Lord, give us understanding. Take us deeper. Lord, we want to wait on you until we are endued with power from on high so that we can be effective witnesses according to the varying and diverse gifts and ways you want to make each of us individually a witness of your glory. Lord, it's amazing to me that we're going to be like you. That we're going to be glorious. Lord, we ask you to start doing it now. Start making us like you now. Start making us more glorious now. Lord, we believe in the power of your Son and of your Spirit and of your Word to transform us. So we just offer ourselves and say, do it, Lord.